At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil. Capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher. As a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Let me go yes, into the YouTube we're live. Page. We're live? <laughs> yes, we're live. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, professional operation here. <laughs> That's what happens when you leave it to the two of us to figure this techno, techno stuff. Well, awesome. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us on AB Live 26. We were having a few technical difficulties. Robert Price and his wife were supposed to join us, but they are struggling with those archons of technology. But the show must go on. In fact, as the lyrics say, uh, my ship isn't coming and I just can't pretend. So, and that is, of course, from the great Neil Peart. We'll be discussing today on this sort of special show, more or less impromptu, that uh, I really wanted to get off the ground for reasons I will tell you. But of course, with us, always glad to have Chris Knowles. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Doing good. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, we hope that Robert Price and his lovely wife, Carol, can join us once they fix their tech issues. If not, in the meantime, Chris and I will discuss somebody we really mutually liked. And uh, I'll speak more. For me, Rush obviously wasn't just a band. Rush was a coping skill when I was in high school and through college. Uh, really moved me. And uh, Neil Peart's uh, death, of course, really affected me very much. So, but what about you, Chris? How did you encounter Rush, and uh, how did you feel after uh, his death, and so forth? Who was Rush to you? Oh, I was a way early Rush adopter, like '76, like when Twenty One Twelve came out. For real, uh, I was. Mm, I guess I was still nine, <laughs> almost ten. Um, but my mother had these. Um, 
my mother was a professional musician and we had this sort of i guess like this extended clan i guess but we were always like at you know somebody's house who was in the uh the the, the troop and uh one of the people in the troop lived in marshfield massachusetts and they lived like right on the marsh it's this beautiful house this huge house modern they had like this jacuzzi in the bedroom and the floor and everything it was just an amazing house but uh, um so we were over there a lot and um the guy, you know, the guy who owned the house, his son was there. Uh, he usually lived with his mother, but he, he, um, the, this guy had a stereo like you wouldn't believe. I mean, oh, I mean, and, and like his living room had like 12 foot ceilings and it was just amazing. So, um, he put on 2112 and I was just like, what the hell is this? I mean, it just blew me away. I mean, cause I was like, I was listening to Aerosmith and, and Queen and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff. And I heard that Rush album and I was just like, I couldn't believe it. You know, it started off with the 2112 Overture and then Temples of Searing. And, you know, it was played at like ear splitting volume on this like $10,000 stereo. And it was just an incredible experience. So I uh, had gotten uh, 2112 and soon after that, uh, I got All the World's a Stage and I sort of caught up with a lot of the older material. Uh, you know the double uh, double LP set, and then it was just off from there. And I, I think really like um, so that was '76. I was ten. I was very young. Um, and then in high school, I sort of rediscovered them because I ha- kind of had this like you know punk rock, new wave, alt rock period. And then I rediscovered them. Uh, I guess when Signals came out, because Signals, it's interesting in in. There was a new wave station in, in Boston called WLYN. It eventually became WFNX. But they would play Rush. I mean, uh, they played a lot of stuff off Signals. They played Subdivisions and, and New World Man. And, uh, you know, I sort of got back in touch. I mean, I'd never really dropped out with them because, you know, they were everywhere. Um, even though, I mean, it's interestingly, uh, it's interesting that, they really didn't catch on here or around where I was until Permanent Waves came out um, with Spirit of Radio. And I think that was really sort of their breakthrough. I, I think they were still very much bubbling under the surface. And it was there was a band that um, I think Gen X sort of took to heart because they, they've been around since the early 70s. And I don't think like that, that boomer, late boomer cohort really embraced them too much. And it wasn't until they really started getting into the technology and the electronics, uh, you know, towards albums like uh, Permanent Waves and, and Moving Pictures and, of course, Signals, that I, I think they really were sort of taken to the bosom of, uh, of our generation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they really became sort of a touchstone for a certain kind of boy, because <laughs> they were definitely a boy's band. You didn't really see a lot of girls listening to Rush, uh, at least not in my experience. But... Um, you know, boys who were very serious and probably wrote like, you know, some poetry. <laughs> Nobody was looking, but we're really into electronics and That's very true. And uh, maybe shop class. You know, uh, it was very much an interesting sort of phenomenon that they, they there was a certain cohort that appealed to them that I think was a cohort that had been resistant to Prague. You know, as it was understood, but you also that was a period, you know, like particularly up in Signals and and Grace Under Pressure, where um, you know a lot of these sort of '70s prog bands were sort of reinventing themselves. You know, Genesis had really reinvented themselves with Duke and Abacab, and of course the self-titled album. And then they sort of mm, they got a little weird, but you know, Yes had the uh, 
owner of a lonely heart and you know all those kind of sing singles and you know it was like a re rediscovery for a lot of this prog stuff king crimson discipline uh you know be three of a perfect pair i mean there was a really interesting period where a lot of um you know sort of these hairy hoary prog bands discovered new music they discovered the new wave post-punk and they also discovered all the electronics and this, this the keyboards and the synthesizers and stuff and it really you know it created like this really interesting and vibrant music that was not you know it was almost like beyond category and i think rush really fit very comfortably to that because like i said i mean they'd get played on the new wave station in in boston at the time you know and this is the time when peter gabriel was doing stuff like shock the monkey uh the, the album security and it was a uh kate bush came out with the dreaming so it was a really interesting period where a lot of like 70s acts were discovering the newer music that was going on and, and really creating like this this almost like this third option for music that wasn't tied down to any particular genre oh we're, we're, we're uh we have we company have been joined bob and carol can you hear us we can hear you. Can you hear us? Yes, yes, sound good. Oh, Welcome okay. aboard. <laughs> we started the rush train. <laughs> Thank as a, you. As yeah. again, a repeating rush, as uh, Neil Peart said, my ship isn't coming and I just can't pretend. So we started the show, and but we are glad you're on. Uh, Bob and Carol, there's Chris, and here is, and, and you are live on YouTube. Say, say hello to everybody. Hello, Bob. Hey, Chris. Hello, Carol. Hey, how Hi. you doing? Always so, good to talk rush with people. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. So, Always. yes. So, I just uh, briefly asked Chris about rush. Oh, and, and by briefly. the way, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, with Carol's name, you pronounce it with a Q. With a Q. Uh, anyway, I. <laughs> okay. Um. Carol's really the uh, big uh, Rushnik here. I mean, she and I wrote the book together, but she's the one with the most interesting history of involvement with Rush. Wow. And yeah, and Chris yeah. just mentioned the chicks didn't listen to Rush. We have one. We found the one, Chris. So yep. So, Carol, yeah. <laughs> tell us what, uh, tell us who Rush meant to you and, um, and what did you feel about the loss of uh, Neil Peart? Ah. Uh. Well, uh, I got on the rush train. Uh, it was 1974. I was living in Cleveland listening to WMMS. Um, and uh, actually, I was just moving from Cleveland then, but I had been there long enough to know who they were. And uh, um, I, was, I was smitten right away. Uh, actually, but my first album wasn't until... Um, 2112 mm. and um, uh, that, that 76 was was my real beginning I guess uh, and uh, they the the lyrics struck me um, as well as the music I mean what a package um, the the lyrics uh, uh, it, it really is responsible for my getting into uh, in studying philosophy in college um, they had me thinking along lines I wasn't used to thinking of, and it was very satisfying. <laughs> and I didn't know anyone around me that thought like that. I didn't have that kind of exposure in, you know, high school. 
Um, so they just opened up a whole world for me. And uh, uh, so, I mean, Neil, Neil's lyrics really kind of um, had a lot to do with developing who I am today. And, you know, the, the blow, I, I, I was really surprised at how, how it, it struck me. I mean, I'm still, <laughs> still um, in the throes of it, really. Um, yes, indeed. I, I mean, I'm going to share for the audience out there in the chat room as you're joining in. If you have any questions, uh, please write them in all caps or questions and I will and ask and tell me who's the question is for and I will get it to our audience. Uh, we can talk about Rush, of course, if you want to expand it to uh, whatever the topics around Neil, like uh, progressive rock or uh, Ayn Rand or Tolkien or the whole satellite, uh, intellectual satellite and metaphysical uh, energies around Rush, feel free to do so. And, uh, and uh, and I also wanted to share, yeah, I mean, why I felt I needed to do this show. Last Friday was one of those classic uh, bad things come in threes. I had just uh, found out that a good friend of mine is being deported back to Mexico, to Guadalajara. So I arrived home and I was bummed out. As soon as I got home, I got a text from my son that uh, an elderly family member had passed away. And I, I got home, I got the text. As soon as I step out to have a cigarette and call my son to see what was going on, I get one of those uh, Chicago Tribune alerts, you know, Neil Peer, drummer of Rush, passed away. So it was like getting hit all at once. And I spent Triple the entire wedding. weekend, of course, dealing with the, the family member who had passed away and talking to my friend who was being deported. And around Sunday, I was uh, doing errands and I just started blasting, you know, 2112, uh, all the other rush and I got emotional and then I said well let's do a show so but I'm glad we're here because I really think he is one of the giants of uh, rock I know some people have said that rush is like the ultimate cult band but I'd like to say there's more to it so I guess I'd like to ask uh, Carol and Bob uh, what would you say you wrote a book called the theology of rush what is the theology of rush Uh, the book is called uh, Mystic Rhythms, The Philosophical Vision of Rush. And um, <laughs> there it is, the modest little little book. Um, well, it, it, it discussed different philosophical topics, but really a lot of, um, of what we talked about is, is really what they talked about character. And well, that's something, of course, religion theology deals with. Uh, um, uh, and somehow there's an overlap into um, spiritual things. I mean, certainly uh, Neil himself is a, a great exemplar of, of, of someone who has really embodied his principles and um, pushed himself to the limit. I mean, all the members, really. Uh, I mean, that's why they... They're who they are, I guess. They, they, um, you know, were determined. They were courageous. They, uh, and they lived up to their principles, which were, you know, uh, well, a number of things. I hope. But um, uh, hmm, I think. Are you? Do you say? I think we're losing you. Do you, are you seeing them being lost there, Chris? 
Um, yeah, they just froze and the audio just kind of went out. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully they'll jump back. And what about you, Chris? What would you say is the... Can we say there's any sort of uh, metaphysical or philosophical centrality to uh, Neil Peart's uh, lyrics beyond this sort of, uh, I don't want to be reductionistic, this sort of mixture of Ayn Rand and Tolkien? Well, you know, I'm kind of a person who thinks lyrics are really kind of overrated in music. Um, you know, Brian, you know, said, you know, he was always wondering why, why does everybody worry about what the music or the lyrics mean? You know, what about this guitar part or this drum part? That has meaning, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing that really struck me about Rush is that they really created like this imaginary space, this like liminal space through sound that, um, you know, to me was much more influential and uh, effective than, than the lyrics, which, you know, I appreciated, but I, I never really... I guess I didn't really take to heart because, you know, I was living inside the, the world of sound. And, you know, we had discussed how, you know, the, the live sound. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the albums, a lot of the recording on the albums would get a little fussy, get a little too, you know, a little bit too long in the oven that it just sort of took a lot of life, which is why I really appreciated the live material because it just opened up. And that, you know, like, you know, a song like La Villa Strangiato or, or, or Bruins Bane or, you know, all these songs, these sort of epic songs that created like this sense, this, this inner world, this imaginary world that you could place yourself into. And, and you know, one of the things I think that's really um, undervalued is just, you know, how their sound influenced you know, not only prog bands and, and, and metal bands and hard rock bands, but really had a huge influence on post-punk and really had an influence on alt-rock and stuff. You know, I mean, just the way that they created sound was so uh, unique in so many different ways and did not rely on idiom. You know, they were creating their own idiom. I mean, you know, certainly the early stuff is, you know, it's obviously very hard rock. It's influenced by groups like Budgie and Led Zeppelin. But, you know, when they really developed their own style, they just created this interesting vocabulary uh, of sound. And, I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, even bands like Van Halen, I think, were, in, were very influenced by Rush, you know, and particularly, you know, I, I think Alex Van Halen, he might not cop to it. I don't know if he does or not, but I'm sure he was very influenced by Nick Uh Just, you know, a, a, a very different way of playing, a different way of making sound that wasn't reliant on these just worn out, tired old idioms that, you know, certainly by 1980, I was completely sick of, you know. <laughs> I wanted to hear new sounds, you know. I wanted to hear something different. And I, I think, you know, the way that they really embraced that, you know, I mean, even starting earlier than Permanent Waves, I mean, you know, I, I would even argue that 2112, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting sonic album, the way they used uh, flange and phase and all these different kind of guitar effects and the way um, Neil was playing, which was, you know, it wasn't reliant on, you know, John Bonham and, and Keith Moon. It was his own vocabulary. And I think what really influenced that is that, you know, I knew he grew up on a farm and he probably spent a lot of time by himself. He's probably spent a lot of time outdoors and you can kind of feel that sort of inner space uh, translated into the music. Yeah, in fact, uh, for the audience, uh, this show will be complete uh, for, well, obviously for YouTube, but also when I put it on, on iTunes and, and iHeartRadio and all these places since it's, uh, again, a special show. But I will also add uh, Chris's, our old interview 
on the secret history of rock and roll. Great book because I feel it will really add to the whole idea. I mean, uh, our rock gods are kind of like the old gods. There are these uh, incorporeal beings or they come with us in uh, non-matter forms and they wake us up. They tell us we can be better than we are, that we belong, and they expect to uh, commune with us and offer a sacrifice. Uh, we don't have these type of rock gods. But hey, Chris, and from your book, I was looking at it. Obviously, you couldn't put all the bands you wanted to. or You'd have like six volumes. But I thought, would Rush fall under Hermetic? Yeah, didn't I include them? I don't see, <laughs> I no. what I did. They might have been in the first edit. I, I was that book was brutal because I was so limited as far as my word count, and mm -hmm. it was just it was like writing a book with like boxing gloves on. It was really brutal. I, I'm pretty sure I covered them in an earlier draft of the book, and I maybe had to cut it because I had to cut a lot of groups. I had a lot of cut a cut a lot of groups that I really like, and it was really painful. So we would put them under Hermetic. That's what I oh, figured. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 I agree. Bob and Carol, can you hear us? We can hear you. Awesome. Great to hear. Yes. Great to hear. So um, back to uh, Russia, what would you say are some of the, as I asked uh, Chris, could we, and I was being reductionistic because as the host, I'm supposed to just put out these uh, little morsels, but can we say uh, Neil Peart's theology is a simple mixture of Anne Rand and Token, or is it more complex than that? Well, it's, it seems to me that uh, his approach uh, to awareness, etc., cetera, uh, is reminiscent, strangely enough. I know this is going to sound like I'm just using my old stock and trade and, and it's all uh, warped by my interests, but it does genuinely seem to me that his uh, apprehension of things is much like that of H.P. Lovecraft, though you wouldn't necessarily know it outside of his sonnet cycle, the fungi from Yaga. There are five sonnets in, oh, they're like uh, over 30 altogether, but there are five which um, sort of get out of the usual horror element and talk about the um, the, the sensing of an unknown infinite beyond uh, the mundane world, which, however, the perception of it is triggered by certain things in this world, like the, uh, the slanting sunset rays on old barns or on the cityscape of Providence and uh, things like this. The, uh, the, uh, when evening has come, the, the lights of the city and all that. He says these things somehow release the from uh, releases from the uh, the bonds of the mundane world of the senses. And uh, though he he was not a theist and wouldn't have considered himself religious, but I think that's pretty well true of uh, of Neil as well. Uh, it's pretty clear he he wouldn't have thought he was a member of a religion. He wasn't a theist. He thought of God as a kind of imaginary friend, which I think is correct in that regard. But he's also very much like the father of liberal theology, Friedrich Schleiermacher, writing in the uh, mid-19th century, who was um, reconceiving what religion really was, because he knew 
uh, in he was a great uh, New Testament scholar and a translator of Plato, and he was incredibly uh, erudite. And he knew that you couldn't just take the Bible as a revelation of invisible truths. That now it's it's too culturally and historically conditioned. It's too mythical, but it does trigger in us a, a new sense of what he called piety, and by that he meant. Well, he used to call it God consciousness, but it was more to the point when he called it um, a sense and taste for the infinite, uh, which goes beyond individual personhood and so on. And he went on to sort of make connections between that and traditional Christian symbolism and the like, but like the later Paul Tillich, who did the same sort of thing, but said ultimately the only non-symbolic thing we can say about God is that God is being itself. And uh, when people have encounters with God or with the holy, what they're doing is is seeing, uh, it's almost Buddhist or Zen, uh, the, the veil of the mundane is ripped away and, and you uh, encounter the ground of your being, which I know sounds pretty abstract, but again, that reminds me pretty heavily of what uh, Neil says about the way he perceives and receives uh, his surroundings when he's out on the motorcycle and so forth, and when he looks in the faces of his audience and so on. He's seeing a higher or deeper dimension of it. That is a kind of spirituality, though not necessarily religiosity. Well, from the song, Mystic Rhythms, he would say, we sometimes catch a window, a glimpse of what's beyond. Uh, was it just imagination stringing us along? You know, it's just this glimpse. Um, you, I, I can see that he's had that glimpse. Uh, that glimpse. He's he's touched transcendent. I, I uh, and and again, I think he embodies it in some, in a lot of ways. He he's he he's just lives so well. <laughs> mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes, yeah, indeed. he. He, uh, I think of Aristotle, who says that uh, God, quote unquote, is the unmoved mover, uh, a personification of, of perfection, which by its cause, all things, all creatures uh, toward it, which means they fulfill their potential as much as they can, and they will be as perfect as they can be. And that means following through on their inborn aim, or the entelechy, he called it, uh, like an acorn, it, it, unless it's uh, unplanted, uh, unless the, the tree is cut down, it will and must develop into a mighty oak. Well, uh, human beings have certain inborn possibilities, potential, uh, and so wasted no time fulfilling every bit of potential he had. He was a fanatical reader of all kinds of material, and you can see, like you mentioned, Rand and Tolkien, and then there's Nietzsche and various others, that he assimilated not uncritically. And he mentions how novels are so great because it's sort of a vicarious way of multiplying your own experiences beyond those which you had so you can learn from others and uh, that's really the whole point of wisdom 
and he uh, he started going to art museums, though he had no uh, training or education in that, but he just felt like he could expand the range of his self and, and became very educated, and the result was not some pompous windbag like me, but rather somebody who, who really followed up on all these resources of potential and development, and, and you can see that in his character, as Carol said. He's, any interview you see with the guy, it, from what he describes about his reactions to other people, uh, his, uh, his views of, of life and, and so on, here is someone who became what he had the potential to be. And uh, it's no wonder that comes through in his songs, that you could do it too, even when he doesn't explicitly say that. Well said indeed. And uh, there's a question for you, Bob or Carol. Uh, would you agree that he embraced technology musically while his lyrics paradoxically warned of being enslaved by it? <laughs> did he embrace it? I, I think for a while he did. Um, I, I'm, I'm not certain of how, how comfortable he was with it, but he's certainly proficient. Um, when, you know, in the 80s, uh, uh, kind of um, ignorance of the terms, you know, the, the tech, you know, what, what the pieces are called and everything, but, but he was, he was using it. And I don't think he had a problem with it in principle. Remember, he says, uh, fools try to wish it away. Uh, that, that's never going to work. Of the uh, launching of the rocket in very similar terms to the dropping of the A-bomb on Japan. And both he sees as sort of glorious Promethean achievements. Uh, and even though the danger is obvious, and in other songs, uh, he uh, he says, yeah, he laments the fact that this can easily turn us into a bunch of, uh, uh, of robots with plastic-covered fists, uh, and the, the mind is the mother of all machines, yet it can be captivated by it. So he seemed to me to have a pretty good... Uh, Balance. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, like Bob mentioned with Countdown, um, you know, the rockets launching... Uh, you know, I mean, he talks about, you know, just the awe of that moment and the tremendous power involved. And the music plays right along with it and really um, depicts a sense of glory and, and, mm. and triumph triumphant, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a masterpiece for what it's trying to do. And, and, and you know, this is an example of how they just, communicate and convey and render, you know, different ideas and, and, and feelings, uh, you know, through the music and their words. Wonderful. Yes. And of course, I love the whole uh, sci-fi sensibility. It's one of yeah. my weaknesses is rock and sci-fi. I'm probably one of those few people who loves Uriah Heep. Of course. Voice oh, just, I saw them in concert. They were uh, fantastic. I so love jealous. Them. Yes, I'm a sucker <laughs> for a fantasy rock and all that. Just um, I, I, oh yeah, that was in Cleveland, by the way. The World Fantasy, or no, no, not Fantasy World World uh, Series of Rock. Wow. In fact, Carol has seen about any group you can name. <laughs> Serious. 
Wow. <laughs> That's not true. Almost. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, uh, Miguel. Yeah, I just wrote a story uh, that uh, is pretty obviously from the title, a kind of combination of religion and old-time space opera. It's based on the old planet stories, hero, um, star pirate, and uh, it, the title of the story is Terrors of the Buddha Field. Uh, and I was tempted to call the, because this is one of those things where they picture all of the planets inhabited by intelligent life. And I was thinking the other day, it hasn't been published yet, uh, but uh, as a tribute to Neo. Oh, wonderful. That's awesome. Sounds like a plan. Can't wait. Uh, <laughs> great. And moving to Chris. Um, possibility. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, moving to Chris, this is an interesting part. I know you've been blogging about the whole woke culture, and of course I've enjoyed each one of them because you're so insightful and right. But um, I recall I was doing some research when uh, Rush came out with 2112. There was sort of this proto-wokeness already in the air because people were calling Rush right-wingers and some English writer had to throw out the Nazi card towards Rush in 1976. Of course, Eddie Lee was completely hurt because his parents are Holocaust survivors. Yeah. So what do you think of that, Chris? Was that sort of incubating back then? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the British press was a disaster. Um, <laughs> is. <laughs> Is was I mean it was really toxic back then though, um, and you know this very strange mentality crept in, where I mean it was very similar to what you're seeing on college campuses today. Um, probably wasn't as totalitarian as it's become, but there was a, a very strange idea about enforcing, um, you know, totalitarian authoritarian. Um, ideals and, and imposing them on music. And, and they ended up, you know, supporting a very small group of artists and, and shunning most of the mainstream because it was hmm. not ideological, ideologically rigorous enough for them. Um, but, you know, most of the bands that, you know, would come later that would sort of in, embrace sort of Marxist ideals, you know, the, the press would turn on them too. So, you know, it's the same thing that we're seeing now. It's just, it's just this hothouse of, of narcissism uh, writ large, um, you know, wounded narcissism, really, is, is the term that I use today. And, um, you know, this idea of people who are essentially mediocrities um, can dictate what other people think and do and believe. And, and in the case of Rush, you know, they're saying they're calling these people Nazis when, you know, Getty Lee is is obviously the, the, the child of Holocaust survivors and, the, and they're basing their work on Ayn Rand. I mean, I'm not a huge Ayn Rand fan, you know, I'll just say that now. I've never really, you know, been a, been a fan of that kind of uh, thinking. But, you know, to call, to call that Nazism, I mean, Dave Marsh and Rolling Stone called Queen fascist. It's just, it's just unbelievable thinking. It's just, it's so insane and so delusional. Um, you really have to wonder where the, where the thinking is coming from. Yeah, it is. It is ridiculous. I mean, Anne Rand, I, I'm a little different. I never thought Atlas Shrugged was any good, but um, 
but I do feel that Anthem and The Fountainhead are some of my favorite novels when it comes to the the fight of the individual against the state. Uh, both yeah. novels I love. So it's a... Uh, I, you know, I appreciate uh, Rand for what she's contributed. And like everybody, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's complex. And actually, there was a question for Bob or maybe Carol. Speaking of, uh, it's Neil was heavy into Rand's philosophy. How, if any way, can Gnosticism and objectivism be harmonized? Can it be harmonized, Bob? I doubt it. Um I'd have to think more about it, but it's pretty clear that uh, Neil and the the group are an embodiment of the kind of uh, hero in Randian novels, like uh, in The Fountainhead, this guy, the architect, they they buy his uh, designs, but then start screwing around with them. So he blows up the the building complex because uh, the autonomy and integrity of the artist and his work cannot be compromised because he is one with it. Well, you know the famous thing about when uh, Rush started to get big and their uh, record company said, "Why don't you do some more pop oriented stuff and all that?" And I said, "To hell with that." It, if, if they insist on that, we're dissolving the group and going back to working in the, the auto parts store. That's exactly a Randian notion lived out. Uh, the Gnosticism, I don't really see. I don't think they think there is knowable secret information out there. Uh, and there are these wisps and hints of some reality beyond Yet you can, it's the kind of thing that cannot be drawn down into our uh, subject, object, uh, objective world, or, or it'll be destroyed, it'll be debunked. Um, like um, Captain Kirk always used to say that in not so many words, that there are a lot of mysteries out there, but they're just problems, and sooner or later we can solve them. Whereas Tillich said that uh, there are great mysteries, but when they are revealed, they're revealed as mysteries. And again, it's the holy, it's the numinous, uh, if, if it were a thing, but just be professed to marvel behind the curtain in the Emerald City. It would be debunked. And so I don't don't see, uh, though I'd be real interested to know what the questioner sees. Well, what occurs to me, and tell me if I have the term wrong, but it's like, Ayn Rand wouldn't want a bunch of Sukhokoi in on her committee, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. The, the, like those are the, the, uh, the little that uh, Nietzsche worries about. Let yourself get tied down by the atom shifts of the world. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, th- there's a real connection there. And, and you're yeah. right. I mean, the Gnostic was a Superman. Uh, and uh, he presumed, well, and, and despite the bad press they got, as far as we know, they had a bodhisattva-like compassion for uh, the Sukhikoi, the, the ones that, the natural men and women. Uh, they meant well, uh, they did well even, they weren't wicked, uh, and God, uh, the, the unknown God, had made a plan B for them, 
So they didn't despise them, but they wouldn't be tied down and, and keep the laws of the demiurge because they knew the Superman, the, the Gnostic Illuminatus, knows better. Well said. And uh, that's interesting. You talked about um, having to do pop music. And that's a question I now have for Chris, because, yes, how the times have changed. Uh, Rush does Caress of Steel. The record label's like, what are you guys doing? You know, you're too artsy and you need something more pop. And they say, oh, sure, we'll that do an it. That was an awesome F album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, Rush says F you and they mm -hmm. do an even more artistic uh, mm -hmm. Uh, progressive album is is this something that you notice Chris how the times have changed that even in those days at least uh, record labels would want to nurture you work with you give you three albums for you to find your voice and take a risk and those days are over Chris or have been over for a while well yeah there would you know there's the whole concept of development you know that you would sign an artist and you would develop them you would let them sort of grow you know and they were thinking more long term in those days um it's not today where you know if you don't have a hit right right away you're just basically thrown down the memory hole so i think with rush i mean they had a real long runway <laughs> i mean they took them a long time to get you know established you know certainly in this market um i don't think they cracked the top 40 until permanent waves i mean they they sort of were bubbling under and they were sort of you know, a cult act and, and maybe big in the college areas and, and so on. But, you know, I mean, like I said, and when I was into them, nobody knew who they were. Um, you know, when 2112 and All the World's a Stage came out, um, nobody had any idea. And it really took them, you know, most, all of the 70s, really, to get up and running and to get established to the point where they're starting to headline major shows and, and, and play you know, large halls in this area and in, in, or in this country, at least. So you, you would not see that today, uh, certainly not. But then again, you wouldn't see a band like Rush get signed in the first place. They would be on, you know, SoundCloud or an indie label at best. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's just not there anymore. And, you know, that's the thing that really bothers me about Neil's death is that, you know, we're just losing all the giants. We're losing all the people who really came into the world and made their mark and, and set an example. Um, it's, it's, just, it's happening all the time. I mean, every day you see people who, you know, all of us certainly grew up admiring and people who really, you know, they moved the ball forward, you know, they, they moved, you know, they moved the culture forward and, and now everything's moving the culture backward. And uh, I, I, I don't see an end to this. You know, I really don't. I don't want to sound overly pessimistic, but you know, we're not going to see another band like this again unless things drastically change and you know to be honest with you i mean the entire ecosystem that supported a band like this and would allow a band like this eight years to really sort of establish themselves is gone entirely it's just it's just gone it just doesn't exist anymore well why why doesn't it exist because i mean even in the 80s or 90s you could a band like rem you know what i mean bands were given two or three albums what what changed um, the market changed, uh, you know, things like downloading, streaming, um, that changed a lot. I mean, video games, you know, music just doesn't have the centrality in the culture that it once had. It just, it's, it's not, it's just background noise from, for most people or most younger people today. I mean, you do have kids who are really, you know, interested in music and really passionate about it, but it's, it's just not 
like it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s where that was the culture i mean that was youth culture was was music and and that's how you know young people interact with each other and communicate with each other and it just it doesn't exist anymore um there are just too many options uh i think mtv really hurt the culture in a lot of ways because it demystified music the same thing yeah yeah, you know, it just made it too available. I mean, it used to be, you know, I, you know, this is like totally get off your lawn kind of talk here, but you know, you didn't, you didn't see, you didn't get sick of these acts. You know, you didn't see them all the time. They weren't available to you. Um, you know, MTV didn't come around till '81. I mean, Russia had already been pretty much established by then, but they weren't, you know, particularly a very visually, uh, you know, appealing band. I mean, that wasn't really the thing, but. Um, the culture just changed because of technology, because of the ubiquity of, of again, streaming video, YouTube, all these kind of things. It just, it just changed, and other things took precedent. Uh, you know, like I said it before, video games are, are, you know, young men. That's their predominant or primary form of of pastime and entertainment these days, which I think is is a catastrophe, but. Yeah. yeah what are you gonna do yeah i think yeah i think you're right it was okay we could almost all agree that the, these bands like rush that were touring that you were lucky if you saw once a year or you might catch a friend and tape his music and listen they were sort of like a the mystery religion what do you think bob do you think some of these bands were akin to a mystery <laughs> religion or carol Yeah, it was it was a club. Um, it was a way of life. Um, a sort of um, it it was the uh, soundtrack of your of your life. I don't know. Um, now it's well, it's I, I, the way I see it. Maybe it's because I'm old now. <laughs> is the music is so much more? Well, more. Uh, yeah, much more filled with. All, sprinkled with all kinds of vice, you know, um, in, 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 unashamedly, you know, um, and that just takes the wonder and, and, you know, just vitality and I don't know, all these, these great qualities, the mystical sense of, of really true art, <laughs> You know, now we just have this stuff churned out. Everyone knows it. I mean, where I live, I observe students and, and they are just coming up on, 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 you know, it's like the, the middle aisles of the supermarket, you know, all the stuff that's processed and, and, and it lacks any life energy. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, and, and when people are fed on that, the culture really suffers and, and, uh, um, I'd like to see that turn around. I mean, I, uh, Rush has influenced countless bands, um, and many of them are very good. I, I, I liked a lot in the 90s. Um, I just went to a Tool concert recently. I think they're oh, wow. tremendous. Very um, jealous. And, you know, I mean, they're kind of out there, but, you, you know, you know, some people would call it the... Um, the fake news, <laughs> but I mean, it's the inc inaccurate, the unrepresentative. I mean, you know, there, 
I guess, you know, I guess, oh, well, there's blogs, you know, there's a lot to wade through if you want to find your tribe. Uh, but just, just walking out the door sometimes, well, it depends where you live. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's a game of who's got your attention? Like, who has the shiny stuff? What are you attracted to? What are you turning your head for? Um, and uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are, you, are, are dangling just the lowest fruit. <laughs> And people are satisfied with, with you know, you know the uh, sex, drugs, and well, all that stuff can be good. There's a good, a dark and a bright side to all that stuff. But I mean, it's the, you know, all for the wrong reasons. Uh, and again, I sound old. <laughs> well, sociologists speak of uh, audience cults fans of Deepak Chopra and, and other people that uh, they'll, uh, or, or uh, Wayne Dyer and uh, so forth, that they don't have an actual live-in situation like the Moonies or the Krishnas. Uh, but um, they, uh, are, are we still on, by the way? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you, yeah. Okay, you. yeah. Um, the, the screen just changed. Uh, but... Uh, if they can go to one of these things, they will, and they have a sense of common identity and so on. Uh, uh, new age uh, teachers and all that, uh, like the Hay House Radio and their events, that would be an audience cult. Uh, and it, it a cult band and that's not unfair there's nothing insidious about that it's just that there is this strong sense of identity among real rush fans uh the conventions especially the performances i don't know what they're gonna do now uh but um yeah there's uh that's there's there's an elvis cult and uh, there a few years ago there were a couple of books written asking is there really an elvis religion and the wisest treatment of it i read said well yes but it's not about the sacred it's about the profane there are no beliefs involved and i thought yeah that seems right to me because i've seen the same sort of thing in lovecraft fandom I mean, I used to give homilies at, at uh, the Cthulhu prayer breakfasts uh, at the, the uh, Necronomicons. At least this was before I got uh, kicked out for not being politically correct. But in the good old days, I would do stuff like that. And, and we'd have a Cthulhu choir and stuff. It was all like fun and funny. Uh, there were no, to my knowledge, there were no lunatics who actually believed in Cthulhu and all that. But it was great fun to go through the motions. And you got to ask yourself, well, if you're doing religious sort of stuff, why is it not a religion? It's like, uh, um, I don't know if it was Freud or whoever, uh, but the Crazy. I think that's the same with uh, the, the cult or religion aspect. So, yeah, it's definitely a cult, but in a completely innocent and positive sense. Yeah, I don't, you're politically incorrect. You got kicked out just for saying the word jihad, right? 
Wasn't that what uh, started that was, it all? Yeah, I I said that Lovecraft was uh, prescient or whatever. He he forecasted that there would be uh, an invasion of the West by way of immigration from. Um, from various far reaches of the globe and these people would bring in a revolt against uh, western centric rational thought and precipitate a, a a retreat into superstition as people fled to the uncomfortable revelations of science. And I said, this is happening uh, and, and so forth. And they naturally said, well, you're a racist. And uh, I was then, well, I wasn't told directly, but a friend of mine who was on the planning committee told me that they decided after that I could never speak at the thing again. Uh, and it, it's just, uh, I find it hilarious. And <laughs> the funniest thing about it was at this very meeting i got the robert block award for lifetime contribution to lovecraft studies and then i'm out uh, it, it's just so funny but yeah i i was booted for being politically incorrect yeah you, the old cancel culture in fact chris you've yeah. also been writing about too you were writing about lovecraft i think about a week ago I think, uh, yeah, you were you're you're sort of uh, guarded about the Lovecraft movies coming down, and you're sort of uh, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nicholas yeah, Cage Colorado in a Space, Lovecraft movie. <laughs> yeah, Colorado Space should be out. Uh, uh, I think uh, February twenty fourth or something. Yeah, it it's interesting because I think that there's probably a lot of crossover between Rush fans and and Lovecraft. Craft fans, mm -hmm. um, I, I you know I, I can't help but wonder you know because you know Metallica did the, the second album was very Lovecraft mm -hmm. oriented, but I'm sure they 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 spun a lot of Rush in their day as well. You know it, mm -hmm. they seem to be at least in their younger days sort of the market for that kind of music. Um, it's it's very much the same kind of mentality. I th I think that. Um, both of them sprung from. I I think they went in you know in very drastically different directions mm -hmm. and, and i think you know rush was certainly a lot more optimistic and and positive than <laughs> certainly lovecraft was but you know it's interesting how these things will bleed into the culture you know but they need to be repackaged i guess is, is, is kind of what i'm seeing but you know you see like i was watching on on youtube like this concert, I, I believe it was down in Brazil, and really? there was yeah. maybe 300,000 fans there, I mean, just for Rush. So mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting how like things will sort of cycle through in, 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 in America and Canada and, and the UK in, in many regards, but you know, we'll move on to other markets, and I know that, that Rush were phenomenally popular. Um, in, in, in Latin America and in other cultures and you know that you wouldn't necessarily think would would, would embrace that kind of thinking because it, it does seem very Western and, and rational and and sort of a, a little bit white Cody but it, it, you know music is music and I think you know it is it sounds horribly cliche but it is a, is a universal language and uh, you know well just look at spinal taps revival in Japan. <laughs> of course, yeah. That How cool is that? 
the classic. Yes, and my friend who was getting deported, I mentioned about Neil Peart, and he like started freaking out. He's from Guadalajara, and he thinks the greatest band in Iron Maiden. There's nothing like them, and I'm like, oh wow, it's great to see that you know. Deep down in Mexico, again, these sci-fi fantasy bands are so popular. So, yeah. Mm. Well, I have a uh, a CD of a band called Shubnagurath, and they're Mexican. Mexican? Oh my god! I'm gonna have to hunt those people down. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, very much so, and. And it should be mentioned, too, uh, despite Neil Peart's success, his brilliant mind and everything they did, I, I always have to go back to what a hard life he, 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 he led towards the end. I mean, he lost his daughter to a tragic car wreck, and then he, uh, his, uh, his wife died soon after of cancer. Uh, Bob and Carol, did he learn any lessons or change his worldview after that? Well, he worldview that's a good question i i know that he uh took to the road right at, at that time um in order to process what had happened and he um he discovered you know with his full attention on the landscape and the people where he traveled you know uh you know he 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 his perspective kind of changed uh, further understanding that, you know, he's, the world is a great, much greater thing than he imagined. I don't know. And somehow taking that in um, helped him deal with his, his, uh, his situation. He was not bitter. Uh, I mean, he did not have a, a, a God, to uh take it up with um he he i don't know did i i think probably a very psychologically sound and healthy thing by finding the way he best could deal with it you know um he, he was very in touch with himself and how he responds to things and and i think you know which is you know always been a good lesson you know look within uh know thyself uh, I mean, that's the foundation of, of, of living a good life is you must do this first. And he, he, um, he was in the practice of doing that. So he, he came out of it very well. It's, it would seem, I mean, it's still very painful. Uh, but he went on to, to, to tour, write, he, he, he included writing books on top of writing the lyrics for the songs um, you know, his, his regular practices and, and, and well, touring, uh, all that was very st strenuous and, and, uh, you know, and he was getting, wasn't getting any younger yet. He, he put more onto his schedule. Like again, you know, with his traveling, which traveled between or, or to all the gigs, um, on a motorcycle and, 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 you know, just interact with the people. And as Bob mentioned, he would always make a point of stopping at, at museums or whatever that area was famous for. He really took it, everything in. And he, he, he 
truly lived his life very fully. And, you know, that's probably kind of a good antidote to anything. I mean, um, yeah, antidote. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much anybody knows, uh, well, is in a position to say publicly about how he reacted to, well, we know how he reacted to his severe arthritis when he was in the last stages of touring and all that. Uh, And he just soldiered on uh, because he felt the responsibility to to the fans. But when he was uh, the last few months of his life confined to a wheelchair and unable to speak, uh, I I would love to know. I'm guessing he took that stoically because he was already realizing, well, you know, things don't last forever. And he could tell he was sort of shutting down. And that's ultimately why they stopped uh, touring and recording. So I'm I'm guessing he uh, just sort of finished it out. He knew it would come to that sooner or later. But I'd love to know, though it's none of my business. Yeah, I'm sure he had no regrets, really. Mm. Yes, indeed. And and that's interesting too, Chris. Uh, towards the end of his life, uh, these rock gods sort of fall apart. I mean, again, this is the days, remember, when bands could put out one or two albums a year and tour around. And eventually, I think Getty Lee destroyed his vocal cords and uh, Neil Peart really? got too old. I mean, it's uh, they do fall apart. And yes, they... The Not Keith come- Richards. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow he's still going. Don't ask me how that guy's still on the road. Um, I I, probably made a deal with Mick Jack. I mean, uh, the devil. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I really believe, um, this is going to sound really corny and stupid, but I really believe that um, rock and roll has a rejuvenating power. Um, I think you see a lot of artists that um stay younger than they should for a long time because because of the music and because of steven tyler (laughs) yeah i mean steven tyler i mean i think he's doing a lot of hormone replacement therapy personally that's another another show um (laughs) yeah yeah. he sure put himself through a lot of stuff before that (laughs) but yeah yeah (laughs) but you know i think the music i mean it gets you you get your blood pumping, get you moving, you know, um, that which is not in use atrophies. Right. So I Mm. think that, you know, the music can really rejuvenate you, but you know, again, yeah, yeah, it does take its toll eventually, um, because of the rigors of touring and the 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 performers are putting something else into it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you know, yeah, but, you know, it, it does, I mean, just the physical rigors of performing can really damage your body and touring. I mean, you know, just touring itself, you know, the, the oh, travel. Oh, yeah, sleep patterns, you know, all that. Yeah, it's not. Mm. It's you know, the diet, I mean, just everything. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's a mixed bag. Um, I, I think with, with Neil, it's, you know, probably a lot of it is genetic. I mean, a lot of these kind of diseases, arthritis and, and brain cancer can be genetically determined. Um, but yeah, of course, you, you know, know. Hitting, th- hitting things, hitting things with sticks, you know, for 30 <laughs> or 40 years is, is not going to do your ligaments or your joints much good either. Right. So, I mean, it's, but it's the listeners, but however, I think Getty's still looking that, great. 
I mean, Getty looks better than he ever has. I mean, you know, he's not a handsome man, but he's sort of, yeah, he's got that uh, Jeff Goldblum thing where he's sort of uh, aged uh, into yeah. his face. Um, Alex, Alex, I think I is. Um, exactly, yes. Yeah, I think Alex kind of maybe enjoys a, a meal or two a, a bit too much, but. <laughs> he's still know, got I mean, that boy face though <laughs> yeah they paid their dues i mean they did their job i mean they they moved the culture forward and and again it's the thing that it concerns me and it's it's horrible to hear like the suffering that you know somebody like neil would go through you know it's just you wonder it's you wonder where the justice in it is um there is none but um you know the thing that concerns me is that there's, there's nobody waiting in the wings to be the next you know, Neil Peart. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. There's, there's not going to be another rush again, unless things really change, unless the culture sort of evolves into a new phase. And, and even then it will be different, but, um, and it isn't just music. It isn't just rock and roll. I mean, rock and roll, I mean, jazz was everywhere for 50 years and then it wasn't. And, and, and rock and roll seems to be going the same way, but at the same point in time, I mean, you know, I think these distinctions are really kind of, arbitrary because most of this, the pop music and, and so-called R&B and all these kind of styles that I hear on the top 40 radio today. I mean, it, it's, you know, like that old Billy Joel song, it's still rock and roll to me. It's, it's all the same thing. It's the same chords being played. It's the same four, four beats. It's, it's, it's all the same thing. It's just the, the externals change, the styles change, but, you know, having somebody, you know, having a group that's going to put that kind of thought and that kind of care into their art, I, I, you know, mm, I don't know. Um, I, I just don't see it, you know, continuing. And it, it's, it's very, it's very sad, but you know, it isn't just, again, it isn't just music. I mean, look at how horrible movies are now. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just that, I mean, how many, how many people even read for pleasure anymore? There's so many things that are just degrading and, and just kind of falling apart. And a lot of it does have to do with technology. Yeah, I would agree. And that's uh, almost ironic because uh, Neil was a proponent of technology making us better. He saw, I don't <laughs> So I wonder how, how you'd feel with these things. Uh, interesting with Getty Lee, I always I remember as a teenager, I would always get confused because I would confuse him from the bad guy from the movie, The Warriors, you know, the, the three bottles and warriors come out. I always thought they looked like him, but uh, neither here nor there. So we are getting towards the end of the interview. It looks like Bob and Carol had to bail out. They had to go, oh, it looks like they're coming back. I thought, the, did you guys take your train to Bangkok or what happened there? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Boy. I wish. No, <laughs> I mean, for other reasons. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're getting towards the end of the interview. So, Bob or Carol, any last words about what Rush meant to you or what Neil's, how Neil's music changed you for the audience to say au revoir? Well, I, I, I think he, he, Neil, Neil and his lyrics helped open up um, vistas for me. Um, I, I think I probably would not have explored um, lofty things <laughs> uh, for the thought uh, if it weren't for, for my exposure at uh, age 14, 16. <laughs> so. Well, it brought me closer to Carol. Um, she wouldn't have um, gone to Montclair State to 
major in philosophy, if not for them, and that's where I met her. And uh, she introduced me to Rush, which I immediately uh, fell in love with, like I did with her. And uh, we've been big uh, Rush fans, uh, well, her before, me ever since. Um, I've uh, been, I think, just to four Rush concerts, but Carol uh, far outdoes me, having been... Oh, a big seven. <laughs> eight, right? Oh, uh, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And she saw Rush at, at the... Uh, uh, Capitol Theater in Pacific, yeah. yeah. And way back there in 76. And, seven. Uh, oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, yeah, just oh, we'll always, uh, hearing one of their songs, Unlocks a Piece of My History, is in a real sweet way. I just, I love it. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I think uh, I must be, I must admit, I'm embarrassed. I saw Rush once, but I was so wasted, I can't remember. And it it's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. And, uh, <clears throat> Don't do drugs well. and go to concerts. Just, that's all <laughs> oh, I'm going to say because I'll regret it for the rest of my life. So I'm sure wow. part of my consciousness wow. thought it was great, but uh, the one that can remember, the one that stores memory, can't remember a damn thing. So, Chris, there's you, always YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Sad life. So, Chris, and any last words about Rush? What they meant to you? Did you see him in concert? No, I never did. I never did. Because at that point in time, you know, I was, I was very orthodox punk rock. So. Mm. <laughs> time, <you> know. <laughs> Straight um, from the religion. <laughs> yeah. It, that, talk about mystery cults. That was a, a genuine mystery cult in every possible way. Um, mm. But um, Mithraic. <laughs> Boston Hardcore was very Mithraic. Um, mm. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, Rush um, to me... Um, kind of just opened up my imagination, I, I think would be the, the best way to put it. And, and again, sort of created um, this liminal space of possibility that you didn't have to um, adhere to, to the idioms and to the conventions and to the cliches that had just become so worn out. And you can just sort of create your own sound. You know, I mean, Rush had their influences, but they didn't sound like anybody who came before them. I mean, I don't, you know, certainly not if they got all the Zeppelin out of the system. <laughs> so it's just, a, it's just a question of like, you know, creating a space where new things can happen is really what it boils down to. From Let's hang it up. Yeah, well said, Chris. Yeah, Rush really, again, affected, really influenced me. It taught me I was an individual. I did belong. Uh, obviously, albums uh, like Signals and so forth was uh, transformative, protective, uh, a coping skill, gave me a sense of perspective to me in the world and me in society and uh, the struggle of uh, not man versus nature or man versus men, but just man versus the machine. I think that was the, the great warnings. Even in uh, songs like Free Will, there was parts where like uh, Neil's talking about... Uh, uh, a host of holy horrors to direct our aimless dance and so forth. Those are the parts <laughs> I really liked. Uh, that was a cat. Those are the parts that I really liked because uh, those were the Gnostic sort of Lovecraft parts. And I was like, Neil, don't go, uh, don't start talking about the other part. I like these parts, the Gnostic parts. Oops. Sorry about mm -hmm. that. I think the cat mm -hmm. just knocked off my camera. <laughs> oh. We have four of them swarming around us, ready to 
<laughs> do who I knows have, what. Yeah, I have two. All right, Kat, what did you do to the camera? Oh well. I have eight and they're all locked downstairs, so Oh I know. Well this one was <laughs> this was under the bed sleeping, so it caught me off guard. I thought I had the room cleared. Eight cats. How do you do with that, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Just you know. It's an addiction, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we understand. <laughs> mm. Next time we talk, you will probably have eight. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no. Okay. Let's see. I got my camera rolling. Let's hope the cat doesn't destroy it. Where's the cat? Because I do want to say goodbye to the audience if I can get this going. Okay. It looks like the cat. Oh, I think the cat just broke my camera. Oh, cat, that's $99, you silly cat. Well, anyway, oh, no. for the audience that can hear me, um, this show, of course, will be available on YouTube. I will have on the show notes information about Chris, about Bob, and uh, the audio version will be on iTunes, iHeartRadio, uh, your favorite podcatcher will be out there. For patrons and members, I do want to include our interview with Chris and his excellent book, The Secret History of Rock and Roll, because it really does relate to a lot of subjects that Bob and Carol and Chris, of course, were talking about, the shift in music and how uh, we've lost uh, these wonderful gods that we're losing. And uh, yes, um, so, but I hope we did give uh, Neil uh, the honor that he deserved, and I hope everybody never forgets him. Where we will, they live as long as we remember. Oh, there's Bob. You've got your cat. Hopefully, we'll <laughs> yeah, knock your camera this one's off. Onyx. Yeah. yeah, he's a good boy. His mind just ain't working. So, so uh, for you, audience, thank you very much for joining us tonight on this Friday. Bob and Carol, thanks for coming on the show. It was a, it was a pleasure and an honor talking about uh, this great figure. Well, thank you for inviting us. Yeah, it's a great honor. Yes, anytime. Thank you, Ted Nellis, too. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. a little inside joke there. Mm. <laughs> well, Chris, as always, thank you, mu- thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. I always appreciate your your gnosis and your insights on past, present, and future. Oh, it's always an honor. Believe me. All right. Well, good night, everybody, and we shall talk to you soon. Hello and goodbye, as always. <laughs>
Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.